You're listening to the Exegete Podcast by Gary Livengood. This is Lesson 13 in our series on Habakkuk. Hello, and welcome back to our study in the book of Habakkuk. As uh, we continue through the second chapter, we are just about done with the second chapter. Uh, This is the chapter in which the Lord God speaks five woes against the Babylonians. Yes, he's bringing them for judgment against his own people, the nation of Judah and Jerusalem. But then in chapter 2, he speaks these five woes against them. And so we're on the fifth one. So let me read just uh, three verses this time, verses 18 through 20 from Habakkuk 2. This is the fifth woe. What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in its own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! Uh, To a mute stone, Arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There is no breath at all inside it. But, but, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So we were, uh, last time we were uh, talking about four observations about idols, and we got through the first observation, which was an idol, uh, idols provide no benefit or no profit whatsoever. And we closed that session by reading from Psalm 103, which lists and very specifically says the benefits of knowing the true and living God. And there were a number of benefits we read from Psalm 103. So idols were of no profit or benefit, whereas the living God is a phenomenal benefit knowing him. Now moving on, the second observation about idols, and that is, and this is directly from Habakkuk, uh, the idols teach falsehood. Now momentarily we're going to see that in the third observation, idols are literally speechless, and yet... Because of the impact of idols and the uh, darkness of the human heart, we do understand that idols teach falsehood. And this is indeed because idols really simply reflect what is in the human heart. Remember, Jesus says, men love darkness rather than light. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 17 to 19, Paul says this, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer, just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness." That is really where the human heart is. And let's face it, when the human heart is creating an object of worship, that's what the object of worship is going to represent. All those bad, evil qualities that unfortunately are in our fallen, sinful human hearts. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. That's Proverbs fourteen twelve. And the sad point of that verse, that proverb is 
that whatever man in his own darkened mind, and of course we're speaking spiritually here, whatever man spiritually perceives to be the right way is in reality the wrong way. I, I recently heard a very, very well-known celebrity, uh, just maybe a month ago or so, say this. Uh, this person is not a believer, but uh, she seems to speak often as though she was uh, some kind of great prophet. She said, and this is not an exact quote, but this is definitely the idea of her statement. The biggest mistake, spiritually at least, we make in this country is thinking there is only one way to God. There are many ways. Now, there's a person who doesn't believe in the scripture and doesn't have the spirit of God in them, and her thinking is darkened spiritually at the very least. And so what is her uh, conclusion? Well, there's many ways to God. So when man in his darkened mind perceives to be the right way, what it is, it's actually the wrong way. And I should add to that, uh, you know, only Jesus paid the price for sin. What separates us from God, friends? Sin separates us from God. Sin keeps us from heaven. Sin keeps us from a relationship with the holy God. And only Jesus paid the price for sin. And only Jesus could have paid the price for sin. No one else could. Also, I think one thing that bothers me about that statement about our, our big mistake of thinking there's only one way to God is there's sort of implicit in that is the idea that somehow God owes us many ways. Um, and, and that's just completely wrong. In fact, don't forget this. God would be perfectly just and perfectly righteous to judge every human being and never offer a way of redemption. He did not have to do that. He didn't have to offer even one way, but he did out of his grace and kindness. Uh, so, may I say that again? There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. We see in Romans 3 that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, um, Paul says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Uh, those are quotes, by the way, from the book of Psalms that, that Paul writes there in that chapter where he's showing the entire world, every human being is under condemnation, is guilty before God. He quotes these verses that are just stunning in, in their, uh, their pervasiveness. No one seeks after God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So the bottom line falsehood of idols, uh, and really uh, the idea here is the bottom line falsehood, uh, falsehood of man, is you can get to God on your own merit. Uh, and that is one of the great uh, heresies of human history, and it should sound familiar. Uh, in fact, I, I won't go back in great detail, but Genesis 3, it started out the exact same way. The serpent said to Eve, did God really say, and then also there in verse 5 of Genesis 3, the serpent says, well, I know a way in which you can be like God. Isn't that something? Even back, uh, I believe, 6,000 or so years ago, the devil was saying, I know a better way to God. And he's still saying that today. I know how to get you to God. Do it my way. And in reality, as I hope we all recognize and understand, there is no way but the way through Jesus. Here's a third observation about idols. Idols are speechless. Verse 18 of Habakkuk 2. 
Idols are speechless. Now, of course, the wonderful irony and truth here in this, in this phrase is that it's the Lord God, the true and living God, who is speaking. The true and living God is speaking, and he's saying idols are speechless. The only, quote, speech an idol can make is what human makers put in its mouth. And by the way, that takes us back to the point I just made. Idols teach falsehood. Uh, so they say to a piece of wood, awake! And they say to a muted stone, arise! Uh, I, I love, I absolutely love um, 1 Kings 18, 25 to 29, when uh, Elijah actually starts mocking the, uh, the false gods of the, uh, the prophets of Baal. Here's what it says, 1 Kings 18, 25 and following. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourself and prepare it first for you, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, small g, but put no fire under it. And then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Uh, that very well may, may mean six in the morning, so perhaps for six hours, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they are going through all sorts of gyrations uh, in order to convince Baal to start the fire. You know, of course, it didn't work. Verse 27, it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside. Some say occupied may mean that your God is using the bathroom right now. Or he has gone aside or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and he needs to be awakened. I love that by Elijah as he mocks them. I love the sarcasm there. Verse 28. So they cried out with a loud voice and cut themselves. Uh, now they're inflicting themselves with uh, uh, harm and pain and, and self-abasement. Cut themselves according to their custom and their sword with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Oh, isn't that a great passage, friends? Uh, and, and Elijah mocking these people who are calling out to gods that don't exist. Incredible, isn't it? So uh, the, some of the key idols that, the, unfortunately, the Israelites did worship in the Old Testament, names like Chemosh, uh, Baal, Marduk, Asherah, all of these uh, worship gods that they worship, small g gods, of course, uh, they didn't speak a word. They couldn't speak a word. And unfortunately, uh, I, do have to, I do have to acknowledge and, and comment that Although the idols themselves cannot speak a word, they're wood and stone and so forth. Behind these idols of wood and stone, gold and silver, there certainly are, at least in many cases, demonic powers. And Paul makes mention of this in the New Testament, that although the wood and stone and so forth can't speak, there are certainly uh, demonic powers and demonic um, presences behind these idols. Don't mess with that stuff, friends. 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, and I think this includes us, some will fall away from the faith 
And that word there is apostatize, and it, and it means actually falling away from the faith, paying attention to, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, look, you can uh, you can argue about that statement, fall away from the faith, and you may uh, hold to one view or another on that. Whatever that may mean, it's really, really bad. It's something that you as a believer do not want to do. Paul says that uh, the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits they want, like nothing else, to mislead Christians. So in our culture today, we may not have the crass idolatry that people literally, at least as far as I know, literally fall down in front of objects of gold and silver and wood and stone. But we've got plenty of idolatry, don't we? Plenty of idolatry in our nation, in our culture. Some of the modern idols that are that we, we may be tempted by... Um, Christians are certainly not immune to the temptation of these idols. And I want to mention a number of these idols. Let's just call them out and say, say what they are. One huge one, maybe the biggest one in our country, is money and, uh, and materialism. And people serve that God. Man, I've worked with some people and been around some people who serve that God with their whole hearts. Also, one that has grown uh, massively in my lifetime is the God of sex. Uh, that is taken over people's lives, and people pursue it with all their hearts. Um, one that is uh, kind of includes a, a, a couple of different ideas is is certainly fame. People desire to be famous, and along with that, uh, the desire, the drive, the god of ambition, power, and prestige. Those all seem to kind of wrap together, and you hear uh, stories about. Especially, I think, uh, young, young ladies who go out to Hollywood and want to be famous, want to be stars. And the, it's sad the compromises they make and allow themselves to be taken advantage horribly in order to reach the goal of fame. And in, in my opinion, it, in many cases, that kind of becomes a god, a god for them. Uh, some people, frankly, serve the god of evolution. Um, you know, these are, what, what, what's a God do? Well, it di dictates your behavior, your desires, your time, uh, what you will sacrifice for it, your money. And there are people who pursue the God of evolution and put all of their eggs in that basket of evolution, hoping that there is no God they have to answer to. Yes, evolution, although I think there's indications evolution is a dying uh, idea, a, a dying theory uh, there's still people who pursue it with their whole hearts. Um, there are certainly um, good things, things that God has given and has granted to us that can still become idols for us. Uh, I, I've probably mentioned before the temptation to put family and, and children first in our lives. And, you know, nobody loves their, their kids more than I. I have two sons. I, I just, I love them to death. I can't even describe how much they and their two wives mean to me. But God forbid that I would ever set them up as, a, as an idol. I, um, I've worked with people who have made sports an idol. And man, I've seen that over and over. They spend unbelievable amount of time uh, following their favorite sports team, watching ESPN constantly, reading about their teams all the time, even uh, putting money on top of their, or putting money down on bets for their teams. And sports, favorite teams, can become an idol. I've seen that and I've worked with those people. And speaking of work, another idol can certainly be uh, careers and jobs. Um, many people fall into that. 
As I, I may have mentioned, I used to work in a, a corporation with thousands of people, and I saw some of these uh, these men and women both who were um, pursuing their career in in a way which told me this person believes their career is a is a is a idol. It's their it's their god. Um, obviously, uh, we know some of the the problems with substance abuse abuse, alcohol, and, and all the drugs available can become a, 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 an idol to people and they literally will give everything uh, in their lives for their addiction. Uh, also, uh, we see this pretty commonly, I think, in this country, the addiction to food, the God of food. Um, you know, we are to eat to live, but not live to eat. Obviously, we have to eat to live, but God does not want us to live to eat. And uh, many people have embraced that God as well. It's a dangerous God, uh, especially remind you believers out there. Um, God is uh, indwells our body. Uh, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6. So we need to treat our bodies in a way that honors God by not allowing food to become an idol to us. And, of course, one, other, one or two other ones. Um, for pastors... One of the dangers for pastors is that church can actually become an idol for pastors. And they spend all their time serving in the church and well-meaning. Um, you know, it's good to serve in the church. It's a great blessing, but that cannot become your God. And I've seen occasions when that has become a God for a pastor to the neglect of their family. And that turns out very, very badly. And then, of course, there's many, many philosophies and religions that uh, are idols, very literally idols. Uh, one that uh, we see and uh, many of us have great concern about it is Islam. And by the way, just a reminder, the God of Islam, Allah, is not the same as the Judeo-Christian God, Yahweh or Jehovah. They're not the same. Um, just in a couple of things, remember, Allah does not save people by grace. Uh, there was no sacrifice for sin, Allah is one of the, Islam is one of the most uh, clear religions in the world that says you have to merit um, Allah's blessings and, and whatever uh, that may mean for the afterlife. Also, Allah is a singular God, a uh, uh, monotheistic religion, good for them, but it's not the same as Christianity because uh, Christianity and Judaism serve a triune God. Yes, we believe in one God. And he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the true God. Allah is a false God. Uh, other religions, Hinduism, Buddhists, uh, the Baha'i religion, Mormonism, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, a religion I know that has been uh, popular in Indiana, a false religion called the Way. Those are all, those three in particular, um, use the Bible. As, and along with their own writings, use the Bible, and they twist the scripture to their own destruction, as Paul talks about in the New Testament. Also religions, uh, for example, Jainism, Confucianism, Humanism, Brahmanism, and there's many other isms we could mention. All of these things that I just mentioned for the last five minutes or so are idols, modern idols. So be aware of those things. Uh, don't let any of those things, and you know, like I mentioned, some of those are good things. Family, uh, Oh, your, your job, your career, 
um, you know, an interest in sports. I I have my interest in sports too, but don't let that take over your gut. Oh, yeah, one more I do want to mention here. This is kind of a new one, I think in this country at least, that's come up in recent years. And that is the God called government. This is a new idol in this nation. Uh, the, there are those in our government that want the government to be God. And for some reason, there are those citizens in our nation that seem to be very willing for that to happen. Uh, your government cannot be your God. We cannot allow that to happen. Um, because the government, without exception throughout history, when the government becomes the God, they try to eliminate the true and living God, the true and living faith. So beware of that one as well. Uh, government as God. So moving on in, in woe number five here, uh, the idols are speechless. God is not speechless, but the idols are. Remember, friends, your Bible is the, we say this all the time, the word of God. Well, it's the word of, if it's the word of God, it means God has not been speechless. A couple of uh, passages that relate to this matter of God speaking. One is in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Paul, Peter rather says here, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. You, you'll remember this, friends. Uh, when Jesus was baptized, he said, the Father said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, Peter says, we heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Of course, that's the transfiguration. So God is speaking here. Verse 19. Um, we have the prophetic word made sure, made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning stars, star arises in our hearts. But know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but get this, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, that is a powerful passage about the fact that God spoke and continues to speak. Also, uh, one, other, uh, one other passage related to this, the first two verses of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to, my, to the fathers in the, pro, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also the world was made. So there's a couple tremendous uh, passages about the fact that God speaks. Idols don't, God does. You know, years ago, I used to, uh, there was a ministry that, that maybe it still does, that worked in Eastern Europe. And uh, they asked people in this country and, and free countries, to send Bibles to those in Eastern Europe when they were behind the Iron Curtain and so forth. And sometimes this, uh, this ministry would ask, hey, we need to send some food along with the Bibles. But it was really fascinating, really fascinated, fascinated me 
the response from those people who were behind the Iron Curtain was this. Don't send us food. Don't send us physical food. They said, we'll find some way to eat and stay alive. We don't want you to send food. What we really need is the word of God. We need spiritual food. So here was a people who were so desperate to hear what God has spoken that they said, we don't even want you to send us uh, food and cans and so forth. Just send us the word of God. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, and he quotes here from Deuteronomy 8, 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by, do you remember, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So again, idols are speechless. God is not. I love John 6, 68. Um, there's a difficult sermon that, that Jesus preached. It was, at least it was difficult uh, to the people who did not recognize him as Messiah. And it said, and the scripture says, many people were leaving him. They were saying, oh, this is too hard. And Jesus says to his disciples, are you going to leave me too? And Simon, Simon Peter answered him in John 6, 668, and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. So listen, friends, it's utter foolishness. It's spiritual darkness. It's self-destructive to not listen to God's speech. And God has spoken. Can we add another verse to this? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God. And those Greek words, that Greek word or words for inspired are uh, two Greek words, theos and panuma. Theos and panuma literally translated is God breathed or even God spirited. So all scripture is breathed out by God or spirited out by God. Uh, it's God speaking. He speaks. Idols don't. And then the fourth, the fourth observation that uh, the Lord makes here in, in Habakkuk chapter 2 is idols have no breath. That's in verse 19. They have no breath. Um, now, the Hebrew word for breath is ruach, and ruach, interestingly, can also be translated as spirit. There's a bit of a wordplay here. Um, no breath in the idol equals no breath in uh, no spirit either. Again, no breath in an idol means it has no spirit either. This is really interesting because the, the, uh, the essential fundamental nature of God's existence is described to us by Jesus in John 4.24. And Jesus says, God is spirit. Again, that is the very essence of God's uh, being and nature. So God is spirit, and yet the idols have no spirit in them whatsoever. Note also Genesis 2-7, Adam was not a living soul until God, remember, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then man became a living soul. So for Adam, breath equaled life. Breath equaled spirit. Idols, no breath, no spirit, no life. Idols lead to death. I've said oftentimes to, as I've been preaching or teaching the Word of God, I've said to uh, listeners, uh, move toward God and you move toward life. Move away from God and you move towards death. And these four observations about idols tell us the complete inability of idols to help us in any way, shape, or form 
Only God can do these things. And it is so important, so important that we rightly understand who God is, uh, his nature, his desires, his purposes, and who he is in his very, the essence of his being. And related to that, um, if you're an A.W. Tozer fan, you're going to love this. I'm going to read a few paragraphs from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. If you, if you don't know much about Tozer, um, he passed away a number of years ago, but his, his writing is absolute gold, and you can never go wrong reading Tozer. He doesn't mince any words. He gets straight to the matter, uh, and in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he speaks about uh, the attributes of God. But he begins in the very first chapter. The very first chapter is called, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. So if you'll permit me, I want to read a few paragraphs from this, and these are brilliant insights. Here we go. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the, more, and the most portentous fact about any man is not what he is at any time given, at any given time what he might say or do, but what he in his deep heart of hearts conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as the most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For the church's silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able with some precision to foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only, in after, only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. A right conception of God is basic not only to our systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation, it is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. And finally, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to an imperfect and ignoble thought about God.
powerful words by a great Christian of, a, of the previous century, why we must think rightly about God. And again, that statement, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I tell you, I couldn't agree more with that. Only scripture gives the truth about God because God spoke through the scriptures. Well, chapter 2, verse 20, the last verse of chapter 2 in Habakkuk, um, we see four contrasts, and I'll just cover uh, one or two of these uh, this time, and then we'll pick up the rest next in the next session. There's four contrasts. Let me read that verse again. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So the Lord has been addressing the matter of idols, and now we see the Lord in his holy temple, Yahweh in his holy temple, and all the earth is to be silent before him. So again, four contrasts between idols and the true and living God. I love that first word of that verse. It's that great conjunction, but, uh, you know, when you use the word but in a sentence, you've made a statement. Now you're going to contrast it with something. Um, and that's exactly what this is. That was, that was uh, teaching about the idols, but... Here's what we understand about the Lord. First of it, first of all, this should be pretty obvious, but the Lord does exist. Idols do not, the Lord does. You see that first phrase there, but the Lord is. That's it. He is. The idols are not. Um, he does exist. He doesn't exist in wood, stone, gold, or silver. But in the scripture, and clear back in Exodus 3.14, you might remember that occasion, God has told Moses, I want you to lead the people out of Egypt. And Moses says, oh, well, what should I tell them your name is? And the Lord answers and tells him uh, the name that God wants to be known by. And we derive from that the word, the name Yahweh, or some prefer, prefer the name Jehovah. It, it's actually um, a four-letter um, derivation from the Hebrew verb haya, which means to be. It's Y-H-W-H. Sometimes this is called, maybe you've heard this, this term, the tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton means basically four letters that represent the name of God. And Y-H-W-H, and, and we've supplied some vowels in there so we can pronounce it, Yahweh or Jehovah. That term, that, that verb, haya, the Greek, not the Greek, the Hebrew term to be is translated as simply I am or I am that I am. And you might remember in the New Testament a couple times Jesus applied that name to himself, I am. Interestingly, God did not say, I was or I will be, just simply this strange name, strange to our ears, when he says, I am. What does I am imply about God? Well, it implies some pretty profound thoughts. For example, it implies that he's eternal. Don't have any past, don't have any future, uh, not was, not will be, I am. He's eternal. It implies the idea of constancy. He's, he's, he's just who he is. He will be constantly the same, unchanging. Uh, the theological term often used is the term immutable. God will never change. Why? Because he is the I am. Whatever he was at one point in eternity, he will always be exactly the same. It also implies that the I am is uncreated. 
Uh, I can remember one time when my older son was maybe about five years old, I was teaching him some theology, which I often did, and we were talking about the fact that God had no beginning. Now, in Christopher's mind, that was impossible, and he, he immediately said, as a child of, you know, this world where everything begins somewhere and everything comes to an end, even at five years old, he immediately grasped the idea and said, well, that's impossible, Dad. And we worked through that and got tried to get uh, our thinking out of uh, time orientation and into eternity. But the reality is God is the uncreated God and only God of all the things in the universe, life and matter, only God is uncreated. So the I am implies about God, he's eternal, he is constant, he's immutable, he's uncreated, and I'm sure we could come up with some more things as well. It's interesting to me that we see here the Lord is. I am, because remember in verse 18, that Hebrew term about the idol, Elil, means God not. So Yahweh, our God, he is the living God, the great I am. The idols are God not. That's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Uh, one more point let me make here. Um, the second uh, contrast between idols and the true and living God. Notice here the Lord is in his holy temple. Now in the context of this vision, Habakkuk perhaps sees God in his temple. We don't really know. But here the emphasis is on the holy temple. Now I want to, just in a minute I'll talk more about that idea of holiness. But I do want us to understand, as we saw in, in the name I am, and the Lord is in his holy temple, that God is not limited to space and time as idols are. First uh, Kings 8.27, King Solomon is dedicating the temple to God. And yet, even as he dedicates it, he says, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Indeed, that is true. So unlike the idols, and I love this statement, God is holy everywhere, but the whole of him is nowhere. That just means that although God exists every point in the universe, there's no location in the universe that can contain all of who God is. God is holy everywhere, but the whole of him is nowhere. No place can contain. It's a bit of a paradox, but it's true nonetheless. And if you want to read a passage about the omniscience and omnipresence of God, Psalm 139 is just a fabulous, um, fabulous passage about both of those um, characteristics about the nature of God. But again, the real emphasis here in this particular phrase is God's contrast to idols in terms of holiness. Idols, remember, all through history, and we certainly see it in the book of Habakkuk related to Babylon, they inspire nothing but sin, filth, darkness, violence, and all those kind of things. Uh, that's what idols are all about. Um, in fact, uh, the temples of idols, in at least in the uh, Old Testament world, were very often places of uh, prostitution, and, uh, and including homosexual prostitution, places of self-abasement and uh, uh, um, destruction of the body physically, uh, places of human sacrifice and many other vain sacrifices. They were places of violence and filth, immorality. Whereas, where is God at? He's in his holy temple. 
the Hebrew term here, Kadesh, for holiness. This is a strange word in the sense that it really quite literally seems to mean apartness. God is apart from us. From us. Um, it also has the idea of sacredness. Interestingly, the very nature of God in holiness means he is apart from us. Um, his whole, in his holiness, he is transcendent over us. God is other than us. He's not the same as us. He is other than us. Um, and I'll close with this. Let me just mention oh, about 10 things that show the nature of humans as opposed to the nature of God. The opposition of these two. Humans are temporal. God is eternal. Humans are finite. God is infinite. In fact, he's infinite in every aspect of his being and his nature. Uh, humans are flesh beings. God is ultimately a spirit, as we saw from uh, John 4.24. Humans are flawed and sinful. God is perfect and holy. Humans are in bondage. God is free, and he's not only free, he is the ultimate free being in the universe. Uh, you can't be more free than God is. Uh, humans are born spiritually dead. God is the source of all life, any type of life. God is the source of that. Humans are limited in space and time. God is omniscient in all the fullness of his nature, omnipresent in all the fullness of his nature. Humans are, humans are ordinary and common. God is transcendent over his creation. He's not a part of his creation. Humans are weak. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. Humans have limited knowledge. God is omniscient. He knows everything that can possibly be known. So the very nature of God in holiness, he is apart from us. And although we are to be holy because God is holy, uh, and that is certainly a biblical idea, biblical principle, in one sense, his holiness is fundamentally different because he cannot sin. He cannot sin. He is holy. So God is in his holy temple. We'll wrap that one up, wrap up this session right there, and pick it up next time with uh, the third contrast between idols and God and finish Habakkuk chapter 2. Thank you for listening. I always appreciate it, and I uh, pray that God would bless you. 